in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. Joining me today is my, here's a good one, bloggable co-host, Ooh, Patrick Pfister. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Mark. How you doing? Awesome, Patrick. And we're sitting here in Brio's uh, Tuscany Grill in City Center in Houston, and we have Giles with us as a guest from Inflow. How are you doing today, Giles? I'm doing well today. Thank you. Enjoy myself in Houston. Yeah, so he's saying- We're that- in City Center, not in Houston City Center. <laughs> and we had a little bit of confusion today. <laughs> yeah. You're saying you're enjoying yourself. You're running around like crazy, right? You had a, a presentation to do at the technical center this morning. Now you're sitting here with us on the podcast, and you're flying back to the UK for a board meeting for tomorrow morning. That's right. Yeah, it's a, it's a busy couple of days. I just came down from Alberta yesterday morning, so it's uh, it was different. That was different. It was minus twenty six up in Grand Prairie on Monday where I was there, and it was practically plus twenty six. That's centigrade here, so that's a ninety degree <laughs> difference swing in Fahrenheit. Yeah, it's. Uh, hard to pack your bag for that one right <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's funny we complain here in houston when it gets cold and it'll get down to say zero degrees sometimes centigrade <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the rest of the world says that's not yeah. cold <laughs> so giles one of your people reached out to us and we looked at what you're doing at inflow before we get there because what y'all doing is really cool what is your background how did you get started in this industry so I'm a mechanical engineer. I studied that at a university. And when I was looking for a job, uh, when, I was, uh, when I was considering what to do when I left university, there was a choice of engineering jobs. I could go and work for a car company or a company making food. And I guess if I'd gone to work for a car company, I'd have been designing door handles for, <laughs> for uh, small saloons and things like that. And then these other guys said, come and join the oil industry and you'll travel around the world and fly on helicopters and go to jungles and things like that. And I thought, hey, that, that sounds that sounds like my sort of thing. So I uh, I tried a few jobs. It's a little in the old industry. after a while, though, the travel. It's all right, yeah. <laughs> it, that's well in my past. But I enjoyed it while I was doing it. But yeah, so that I got into that. And then uh, I've done a series of jobs. I did uh, my job for a long time with an accident investigation company. I then worked in oil field economics and then got involved in work for one of the big international operators, Total, and they took me around the world doing facilities projects and things like that. Yeah, the, the accident investigation company. So I have to ask you, you, you told a story about the first job you had with that company? Yeah, so uh, my first uh, my first day with, a, day with a job in the oil industry, it was not good. It was way back in uh, 1989, just after we'd had the Piper Alpha accident in the UK. Uh, where 167 people had been killed in an offshore oil platform. And my first job was as an accident investigator on that uh, unfortunate event. And so, you know, within a couple of days of joining the oil industry, I was talking to people who'd lost friends and colleagues and and uh, that's really, a heck, really heck of an introduction traumatic. to the industry. What of a way to be introduced yeah, to injury? Because yeah. I think to this day, that's still one of the worst as far as loss of life. At least yeah. BP, the Macondo disaster, didn't it? Oh, oh much, much worse. Life, yes. yeah, yeah, much yeah. worse. Much yeah. worse, yeah. And you stayed after that. Well, yeah, it made me reasonably wary about, uh, <laughs> about you know, the situations you get yourself into. But the, certainly the, the process of going through that experience for the North Sea industry was 
changed entirely the environment and the approach to safety. And, you know, I'm, I'm always very proud of being part of that, that, that process, which helped, uh, helped the industry move forward. I think it made a big difference. And, you know, that's one of the main reasons why we haven't had similar accidents. And, and you know, Macondo is probably the only other sort of globally known accident, which is of the same sort of magnitude and scale since then, which is pretty incredible when you consider what we do in the industry. Oh, yeah. Uh, that Piper Alpha incident changed the entire industry globally for the better. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, golly. I, I think everybody in the industry it, it has to know what the Piper Alpha incident was. But if you're not in the industry, we'll, we'll put a link. There's a good video on YouTube that kind of explains what happened, where, where the failures mm-hmm. were. and, and But uh, the industry is well aware of Piper Alpha. And yeah, like you said, it changed the way we do our processes completely. And one of the other things I, I always feel it did was it, it put, put to bed the myth that s- safety costs money. I remember one of the 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 Scottish judge who ran the uh, the judicial inquiry into it. He was, you know, the oil companies wanted him to look at the economic evidence around the cost of imposing safety regimes, and uh, and he took a very straightforward view. He said, uh, "I don't want to hear that because we have to make sure it's safe, and they'll deal with the costs afterwards." And in fact, the regimes that came into place just made the industry more efficient. People had to think very carefully about what they did. Particularly when you're flying people offshore, they started to think about how they were going about it. And that that made the industry more efficient, more cost-effective in a lot of ways, but also much safer. Yeah, we talk about that on the show all the time, that a safer operation is a more efficient operation, and it ends up driving costs down and drive efficiencies up. Yeah, you're spot on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we actually, even though this is HS&E show, we talk a lot about different technologies. And you just pulled something out of your bag, which I'm looking at on the table right now, and it is simple but it's almost miraculous. Tell us what you do. So we use carbon fiber composite pipes for building uh, water cut and multi-phase measurement systems for pipelines in a water cut sense, but uh, for wellheads in multi-phase measurement. And essentially what we have is a very, very high strength, high pressure, corrosion resistant little bit of pipe. And we're able to embed sensors into the wall of the pipe where they're not in contact with the fluid and measure properties of the fluid with those sensors. And what it essentially means is we have a zero maintenance way of monitoring the fluids in the pipe. Yeah, and it's it, so putting sensors on pipe in this industry is not new. But the problem with sensors is there's the sensor is physically separate than the pipe that you're drilling and tapping or whatever else. And so that physical separation causes issues, leaks. Things get clogged up. The sensor can't read stuff. Y'all have managed to work your way around all those difficulties of having sensors drilled and screwed, tapped into a pipe. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, the the obvious win is there's no maintenance. Once people install that, that pipe, it is a piece of pipe. It doesn't have to come out. And it's actually a better piece of pipe than most pieces of steel pipe. It's certainly stronger and it doesn't corrode. But the second thing is, if you're not touching your sensors with corrosive fluids with erosion sand coming out of wells waxes and paraffins your meter doesn't change its calibration you're not changing the measurement thing you're measuring with so you get a much better result out of it much more reliable yeah and then because it's much more reliable and you get better results you start decreasing the amount of man hours you need around the sensorizing of that pipe yeah absolutely and in fact, that's one of the things that's inhibited the, the use of a lot of measurement technology at the wellhead. There are cost questions, but one of them is if you can't build something that's as reliable as, say, a pressure sensor, you can't 
instrument a hundred wells because you need uh, far too many maintenance guys going around to deal with the problems of them. So by by taking the uh, maintenance out, you, you, there's a whole bunch of impacts that roll forward from there, a lot of which have a big impact on HSE footprint of operations. Yeah. Well, yeah, operations. You're not having to shut down. You're not having extra guys on the on site. You're not putting hands on equipment. There's just yeah. and and that's a kind of a running theme with HSE. You get hands off equipment. Yeah. You make the operation safer, more efficient. That's right. Yeah, and you especially in environments where you've maybe got HSE, you've got low single man working, all those sort of things. You can't run risks of having to intervene inside flow flowing conditions. There are too many shutdown requirements to deal with it. Yeah. And so the other thing I think is really cool about what y'all are doing is this is so unbelievably scalable, right? So our industry as a whole, and it, you know, people have been talking about the digital oil field of the internet of things and all the gas for a long time, but it's actually starting to happen finally, right? This is, could be one installation. This could be a hundred thousand installations and it's still no maintenance, no people going out there to do anything. It's unbelievably scalable. You literally, and it looks like you literally just uh, uh, put it in line with, with whatever your uh, pipe you're using now. Indeed, yeah. You just put it in as a little spool piece, a couple of flanges, squeeze it between the flanges, and that's the way it goes. I certainly hope you're right as, as a guy involved in the business. I hope you're <laughs> right when you say it's going to be 100,000. <laughs> but yeah, I think the industry is now just turning that corner. We are quite a long way behind most industries in the way we use information. But it, it is, in a lot of ways, it's incredible how little information we have on our primary source of uh, revenue, which is wells. If you go to the agricultural industry now, they don't. They look at productivity from their from their fields on almost square meter basis, and we we're st- in some cases still out there sticking holes in the ground, opening them up, and going, "Well, I got something out of it. That was good." <laughs> so, so speaking of agriculture, I learned something the other day. You know, they actually use RFID tags on cattle so they can track the. Cattle. I mean, that's how that's how much data their farmers are gathering out there over their livestock. And you're right. There's wells out in West Texas where some guys, they're producing, and some guy drives out there in a pickup truck with a clipboard and a piece of paper yeah. and reads meters. We can do much better than that. I mean, <laughs> yes. much better than that. Yeah. And even if you're a small operator, you know, having the ability to remotely look at all your wells, because now there's connectivity options, right? Because yeah. you, you talked about the data and th- that we're behind. For the longest time, th- that data was there, but it was siloed, right? It was in an Excel mm-hmm. spreadsheet somewhere on a clipboard. If it wasn't a database, it wasn't connected. Now the cost of technology has dropped so low that even a small operator, can sensorize their, their their production and actually look at that data in either real or near real time and make smart decisions. Absolutely, yeah. And, if, you know, I've been at a technology uh, event this morning talking about the internet of the oil field and big data. And half the guys who were there were presenting solutions which are all about data management and data gathering. And once you've got your data in one place, you can start to manipulate it quickly and smoothly and really start to get some insight into what you're doing. It's, it's quite an exciting time for the business, I think. And it, it's all related to a need to industrialize to deal with the reality of the oil price uh, environment we live in. Yeah, and we're going to be in a low crude price, low crude price forever, that, that- that shale geology, which which we hear a lot about in the U.S., that that geology is not unique to the U.S. It's all over the world. No. It's just nobody's figured out how to tap into it mm-hmm. like we have yet. But but the rest of the world's getting there, and that's going to be more wells. A lot of it's on land. You have a lot of the big nationalized oil companies, and you know we talk about Total, but we have a lot of the super majors. They're all looking at this problem, and they know that the solution drives economic benefits. Right? Can I look at all of my production in real time and make smart decisions? But the the problem is actually there's two problems the first problem is actually 
metering or measuring what's what's going on and what you saw. And the second problem is, have they figured out how to have that data that's clean so they can actually do good analytics on it? Because this has been a big data industry forever. Even mud logs were done on paper. That's still data, but that yeah. data was siloed. So what I think is so cool about this is it's a simple solution to a very critical piece. Now anybody can go out there and slap this, this sensor out on their production wells, and they can actually start measuring, collecting that data immediately. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Real time. Yeah. You, you mentioned everybody. being at the, being at the conference and the Internet of Things and big data is starting to become something that the industry is is embracing. I think we're at a turning point where the old way of doing it. Well, we didn't. We tracked a lot of data. We didn't do anything with it. So up until the last year or so, we didn't really know why we needed more data. All right, we're going to get more data. What are we going to do with this data? Who cares? Why do we need to spend money on technology to get more data if we're just not going to do anything? Like Mark said, if it's siloed and it stays in a spreadsheet. But their consultants and companies are learning what they can do with the data to make smart decisions. So I think we're at the, the like you said, the, our, our industry is a little slower to adapt to this change. But I think we're on, we're on board now. We see what, what data can do to help us, you know, whether it's improving safety or efficiencies. Which which are, are connected. And Absolutely. Yes. I, I kind of want to steer this back because I was going to make a point and I got so excited about what this actually <laughs> is. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a tech geek at heart, right? But when you go back to looking at uh, measuring flow with uh, something that like this, now people don't have to go out in the field to do maintenance like they had to do before. People have to go, don't have to go in and fix stuff or unclog ports or, or whatever. It literally is, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it has to be pretty close to maintenance-free, if not maintenance-free. Well, we... It, so far, it has been maintenance-free. We've had uh, we've had a couple of meters in the field since 2014 was our first one we installed, which is actually in uh, northern Alberta. No, actually, it's not in Alberta. It's in British Columbia. So it, it's seeing Canadian winters down to minus 30, you know, regularly. It's been sitting out there in the open up there since 2014, and it has not missed a beat. And That's it hasn't awesome. need to be changed or recalibrated. It, it just sits there and, and gives data, which is what you want your systems to do. Yeah, and Patrick, I don't know how familiar you are with flow meters, but that's very uncommon. You don't run one for four years without <laughs> either it breaking or having to go out and recalibrate it. In fact, there's so many of them. Actually, speaking of data, there's so many mechanical ones out there that have never been calibrated properly that the even the readings they're getting back from the field for the last five or six years are wrong. So that, that's what I want to get into, too, the reliability of this this technology versus the old way of doing things. How How does it compare? So there are two, when you're, I mean, I don't want to get too much into this sort of science of measurement. There's two aspects to accuracy in a measurement. One is how good is the instrument on the day you put it in? And, the, and most instruments are pretty good on the day you put them in. And the second one is how good are they the next day and the next day and the next day? How it's close that reliability and repeatability. Yeah. Those it's two a repeatability. Up. Accuracy is a combination of how well, how precise your device is and then how repeatable it is. What we get is complete repeatability. We haven't reinvented science. There's, I don't think there's any Nobel Prizes coming our way for magic sensing technology. But what we've taken is, is known measurement methods and just made them work in a much more repeatable and reliable way. And that ultimately gives the operator what he wants. So often what an operator needs to know is, did something change? Right. And if, if you've sat there and your measurements changed and you've, there's any doubt in your mind whether it was the measurement device that changed or the fluid you're measuring that changed you've now got an uncertain measurement you don't really know what's going on as soon as you take the unknown of the measurement device out of the equation you're freed up to interpret the data in a different way and accuracy then means something slightly different it means what 
now I know I've moved that far from yesterday. What does that mean about what changed? Well, that, that's, that's a very good point thing. because I've a lot of times if there's something you see a spike or a dip in, a, in some data coming at you, it's I've heard way too many times it's oh well that sensor's broken or that it, it acts up. So yeah. the initial thought is it's not a problem with the what's going on in the system. It's a problem with what's being measured. And I you know I use you know scales and p tanks that never work. So you're always sounding, so you just you stop relying on them. And you just do something else. So that's that's a very good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Are, are we talking about possibly well control here? So ultimately, when people, I can't remember the exact quote, but there's a very famous British scientist from the Victorian era called Lord Kelvin. And he, there's a very famous quote from him, which is, I can't understand something and I can't control something unless I have information about it. He didn't quite say it like that. No, I should probably learn the quote. <laughs> But essentially what he was saying is unless I have information, I can't, I can't make meaningful changes. When we talk about well control, whether it's automatic well control or manual well interventions, they still rely on the information you've got to make a sensible intervention. Once people are comfortable that the information is reliable and algorithms built up, then we will be able to do automatic well control and those sort of things. And that's about getting confidence through the system. So is there any application right now being used to, to measure mud flow on active drilling operations? Uh, we, aren't, we haven't got anything active in mud flow at the moment. We have looked at a couple of drilling applications for people. It's, you know, it's one of those things where as a small company, we tend to prioritize some things, and, but we're, we're always having ideas. I think there are a lot of very exciting possibilities in the drilling industry with this as well. But well, I tell you, you what, know. make a really interesting proof of concept to, yeah, to actually That's do this in, in a controlled environment sort of way. So if we have any major or even mid-sized operators out there that wants to maybe look at doing some advanced well control stuff, we'll uh, put Giles's uh, contact information his website, reach out to yeah, him. I think that'd be good. Yeah. That'd be uh, because when you start talking about well control, that's like the holy grail, right? If, if, if we can make sure that, because the problem with well control now actually is, is sensors and actually systems and data. That's why people are still involved a lot of times. And, mm -hmm. and people don't always make the right decision in the moment. But if you have all the data now, boy, this thing's getting huge. So I get the sensor, I get the carbon fiber, I get the fact that the it's very or almost no maintenance. But then you need to take that data from the sensor, and typically it's done in a SCADA environment. I don't know mm -hmm. if that's y'all work in that environment. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So so you know when we divert, started developing this, we we recruited. We didn't go out and look for a bunch of oil field instrumentation engineers. In fact, I always say that until a year or two ago, you could have stuck an oil well in the middle of our office in the UK, and I'm the only person who would have known what it is. Everybody else would be saying, "What's that? What's that dirty thing in the middle of the office?" You know, we we've got a lot of people who came out of, you know, mobile phone companies, uh, data storage companies, and they they. Well, I remember sitting with one guy in a meeting, and he he started talking about the out of the box experience. Which I was thinking, well, what was he? What was he doing last night? But actually, <laughs> what he was talking about was, what do you do when you take the thing you've just bought out of his box? And he was thinking, if you think about it in the context of that of a piece of consumer electronics, say a home router, you plug it in, and you you've got maybe got a sheet of paper, but you've also got a CD-ROM. You put it in, it you follow a wizard and do that. And that's exactly what we've tried to do here. Is we've tried to build a piece of digital electronics which is completely configurable by the user through graphical user interfaces. And then that seamlessly feeds through to his control system. So he should be able to set our, our Modbus control system or whatever it is up through a graphical user interface and all these sort of things. So all those things are possible. We also provide some bespoke data gathering systems for people as well. That's interesting. So you all do more than manufacture a sensor. You also 
build the software around it, and it sounds like you'll have a GUI built to make it easy for operators to integrate it to whatever current system they're using now. Uh, absolutely. I mean, one of, again, when you start to look at whether technology is going to be implemented in industry, one of the things you have to look at is all the barriers to use for the operator. And undoubtedly, one of the barriers to use for operators is how specialist does somebody have to be to use a piece of equipment? And you know, they'll start to think about, am I going to get a service engineer from the supplier in every time I install one of these? And the answer is you shouldn't be doing that. You should really have something that you can configure, a genuine side operator can configure. So we've designed this from the outset as something that bolts in, connects in. We can look at it through a modem from our office in the UK and look at diagnostics, download data, and help the operator get it set up. But fundamentally, it should be a site guy who maybe never seen our equipment before we set up. And in fact, the first meter we ever installed, we sent it to Canada in a, uh, in a suitcase. A guy up in uh, Fort St. John took it out of the suitcase, hooked it up himself, talked to me on the phone for about 10 minutes while he was doing it. And uh, we didn't go and look at the meter for six months till it had been running for six months. It had all been configured by a guy who'd never seen it before and had never even heard of us two weeks before that's cool so no need for it to come in right and i think that's key too and i mean huge. you talk you talk all the time about the our industry slow to change we don't like to take risks and anything new is a risk taking that risk away just all right yeah. you, know, you you can install it you can do it you don't need extra tech and mm-hmm. and then talk out of the box the reliability you don't you didn't have to look at it for six months it was just running out of the box i yeah. think it's an important thing for the oil and gas industry because again we don't like change mm-hmm. you don't like risks so the easier you can make it the better for us yeah absolutely absolutely yeah, it's we're getting kind of through the halfway point of the show. It's actually about time for the Red Wing safety tip of the week. So, oh, Giles, word. do you have a safety tip for our audience? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I always encourage people to do is just before you do something that's new, or even if you're doing something that you've repeated again, just stop for a moment, pause, think about the steps you're going to go through when you do your activity. You know, there's a lot of culture around toolbox talks and things which people use when they're doing unusual activities. They'll sit down, they'll think about it. There's a lot of things you do day to day which which are quite complex, and sometimes it's a good idea just to step back and think about it before you do it. You'll see some wins, but also you might see some dangerous things you're doing. And that's a great tip. That, Patrick sounds like he stole it out of your toolbox. Man, I, that's that's something if we um, if you or I were going to do a safety tip, that's exactly what I would say. It was two weeks ago I got a flat tire, and I know how to change a tire, but I've never actually done it on my the truck I have now. I got the manual out and I just went through the, you know, step by step. And I felt a little silly. You know, I didn't want anybody in the in the parking lot seeing me going through not knowing how to change my tire. I, I knew how to do it. But I, I stopped myself and I did a refresher just real quick and then done. But yeah, even if you've done it a thousand times, take the time to just walk through, go through the steps in your mind and, and try and identify anything that's new out of the ordinary or there could be a hazard. I, I, I love that tip and I think it's something that's easy to do but gets overlooked. And I think it applies to all of us, not only the people in the field, in your personal life, people that don't work in oil and gas, just stop and think through what you're getting ready to do. Absolutely. All right, great safety. That was actually really good. You can tell he's actually from been in the field. Yeah. We can always tell the guys who go on the show that have been in the field and the ones that can't by their safety tips. That's a good one. So get back into uh, Mflow. So Mflow has been around for how long? We were started up about six years ago. Six years ago, I was employee number one sitting <laughs> in an office of my own going, hmm, what am I doing here? Sort of thing. But uh yeah, we're, we've grown a bit now. There's 25 of us sitting in, in the UK. We've got distributors in Canada, and we've got some guys positioned around the world now starting to look at implementing this stuff in the field. So it's an exciting time for us. It's, it's growth time. And I'm, I'm telling you, this. I've never seen our industry 
look at and adopt new technologies as fast as they're doing it now. And there's, there's a bunch of reasons for it, but I think you either accidentally or on purpose timed it just right because what you're doing, there's a huge need for. It drives safety metrics. You don't need as many people. It looks like it's, you know, no maintenance. And I don't want to get into the cost of this, but I'd be willing to bet that when you look at over, say, a couple of years period, that your costs are probably pretty equal to almost anything else out there. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the big sell for us and is is a life cycle cost. So we get two advantages. One, you can use technology in a much simpler way if you can build it into a composite structure. We don't have to worry about the mechanical assembly of a lot of the electronic components because they're not in contact with any high pressure or anything like that. So we can build a relatively simple, cheap device. But actually, the real win for the operator is all the post-installation costs, which are which they're seeing in a lot of equipment now. And that, I think that's really where we're going to move And also to. production costs, right? So when you have a sensor fail, you got to stop production. How much does that cost you a day when you stop that well from producing? Whereas since your sensors aren't in contact with anything that's fluid or sand or high temperature load to whatever, it just runs. Yeah. Yeah. So you're talking about uptime or, or production. What are you seeing when you talk to customers about putting something like this in? Are they worried about the reliability or is it, is it the cost is it is it downtime what what are their what are their primary focuses right now so, so we can usually allay the reliability and risk aspects of it they're fairly comfortable that what we're selling them is a high integrity piece of pipe which and we we tend not to get much questioning about our reliability you know f- you, as soon as you look at it you can see that yep. the focus tends to be on two things at the moment and the main one of those is how well it measures so the reality is it's we haven't got a big track record in the field. So oil companies always like to see the field track record. So that that's our biggest obstacle at the moment is getting enough of these in the field and get them into operators' hands so that they're prepared to use them and get comfortable with the data. So are they using this as a redundant system to try, try it out and still relying on their primary sensors? Yeah, quite often they'll install it at the moment against what their existing system right. is and saying, how does it compare to our existing system? That, that's always an interesting challenge because we might be saying to them, I'm, I can think of 10 reasons why your existing system may not be right, but it, that's what they'll do at the moment. The next phase in development will then be people putting them in as their primary measurement system or, or as a place place where they haven't got a measurement system at all. I guess that so is a risk, putting a new sensor in. If you're used to relying on your old data that you think is accurate and this new sensor comes in and tells something that's that doesn't match yeah. the story that you've been hearing. Yeah. Are you going to believe the new data? Are you going to fall back and say, I guess it's it's hard to make a self-realization that we've been measuring this inaccurately for X number of decades. And Yeah, so, so I mean, the really interesting one is well flows and, and you know, complex multi-phase flows where you've got oil, gas, and water coming out of a well. People can't see inside pipes. They You might do some tests in a lab with a transparent pipe and take some video, but that doesn't tell you. Like, a lot of guys do R&D on that. But the guy in the field... He looks at a pipe and he, he'll start to think he understands what's happening in it. And then something like this will come along. And I taught some old timers in the multi-phase flow meter industry. And they'll say to me, your biggest problem is going to be convincing somebody that what you're telling him about the flow, which is different from his perception of what it might be, is that you're right and he's wrong. And that, that's an interesting challenge always. It's funny. You know, you know how I knew uh, we were shipping Bayrider cement through the pipes when I was working offshore? How, how I knew that pipe was the one that had the product going through it? How? I put my jawbone up to it. 
You could hear you could, the you difference. Could, you, could, yeah, would, uh, you could hear the flow of the of the product going through the pipe. Yeah. You could you could kind of tell. It's like I think product's going through here, but to know for sure, I would just put my jawbone up to it. I could hear. You could definitely tell there was product going through it. But that was that was my sensor. Yeah. <laughs> so I told I was told a funny story in Canada the other day about a guy who was waiting for a pig to come through a pipe. So he lay down with his head on the pipe. And he was out in the woods in Canada, and it was a nice warm afternoon, so he started to fall asleep. And he was woken up by, he thought it was his colleague prodding him to stay awake, and he looked up and it was a bear. (laughs) (laughs) That could be our safety tip of the week. Don't fall asleep in the woods in Canada. (laughs) Or the bear may wake you up. I want to pause right here. If you want to support the show, do us a favor. It takes all of 30 seconds. Leave us a review. It's the easiest way to, to, to support the show. We got a good one, Patrick. Anyone who works in the oil and gas industry has been exposed to HS&E, so it's a great to see a show promoting something so important to our industry. That's from our buddy Ryan Ray. Awesome. Yeah, so thank you, Ryan, for leaving us yeah, a review. thank you. I guess we have to go leave him one, too. You go check out his show. We'll put a link in the show notes for his show. Giles, see that bag right there? Mm-hmm. That's the Red Wing Offshore bag. Okay. It has become a cult item. People offer us cash for that thing. We give away one a week. You can enter to go win one. Our audience go in and go win one. It's really easy. Go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put your information in and we give away one lucky winner a week. Then if you want to learn more about what Patrick and I are doing with this show, go to our, the website, oilandgashse.com. I got it right. Yes, you did. Yeah, give us your email address and we promise not to spam you. You can also join the Oil and Gas Global Network LinkedIn group. That's the home, the sister or the companion for this show and all of our old shows and all of our new shows coming out. And then, Patrick, I was going to announce that we had an oil and gas happy hour that we're promoting on March 29th, but now it's not March 29th anymore. Yeah, it's, it? it's, I think it moved to Tuesday, so it's the same week, but I don't, it's not hammered down yet. So uh, end, of, end of March, we're going to have an event. Yeah, and it's going to be a live event here in Houston. Uh, you're more than welcome to join. You have to RSVP. We'll put a link in the show notes where you can go just uh, sign up for it, regardless of what the date is. And we'll get the yeah. date right in the next day or two. But, you know, come see us. We'd love to meet our, our audience our, in person. We give away some brewskis. And we're actually doing it, at, I believe, at Re- WeWork in Galleria, which is a yeah. really, really cool place. We have some events coming up. BP MS150, that's always uh, close to our heart. That's a big one, yeah. And we're going to have some uh, some more interviews around uh, the event and safety. Um, but that's, yeah, that's the uh, April uh, 6th or 7th. Yeah, April 6th, 7th. And then we've got OTC, fast approaching, very end of April, beginning of May. The whole crew will be out there. Some of our new podcasts will be out there. All, all there is press doing our press duty. So yeah, yeah, so if you're coming into town for OTC, reach out to us and uh, find out what we're doing because we do have some events planned for that as well. Yeah, we have some really cool stuff. So, Giles, if people want to learn more about Inflow and about you, where should they go? They should go to our website, first of all, which is www.mflowtech. That's spelled M, letter M, hyphen flow, hyphen tech, T-C-H, dot com. Yeah, and we'll put a link in the show notes so people have to be writing stuff down. And then I guess if people want to learn more about you, it's LinkedIn. Through LinkedIn, yes. Yeah, yeah I have a LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, we'll put I'm links in there. Yeah. And, uh, we try to put some some articles about how we see the measurement world changing. Yeah, actually, so I've, I've read some of y'all's posts. It's actually very well written. I don't know who's writing your stuff over there, but they're doing a good job because <laughs> they're doing a good job of mixing the technical with the ease of readability. And usually technical people that write stuff can't write stuff. It's easy to read. <laughs> and then I was going to make fun of, of you earlier because you're such a social person, but you're an engineer. Once again, that's a rare combination. <laughs> and, th- and we love our engineers. Nothing we do, engineers. but we, bro- we broke our rule with this interview. Yeah. We said we, we, we don't want to have a sole engineer on the show because sometimes they get, they get introverted and, and don't like talking 
talking a lot, but you, you did a great. So that's true. We did break our rule. So our rule, and our audience doesn't know this, and, and Giles doesn't know this, <laughs> is that if we have an engineer on, we have to have somebody from sales or marketing with the engineer from <laughs> just, the same just company. to help blow the conversation. Because uh, it, it's funny when they start talking about the tech, they get real, real excited. But it's that intro. It's you know, tell us yeah. about yourself. They don't really like. But you did, yeah. you did awesome. Yeah, well, it, that maybe explains why there's a lot of people around our company who won't let me do any engineering. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about that way. It's actually You're not funny. engineer enough. You, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, we, you know, we talked earlier about the events. If you want to know about all the oil and gas events that are going on, we have a newsletter we put out uh, once a month. It's free. Go sign up for it. We'll put a link in the show notes there. Or if you've got any events that aren't on our list uh, that we haven't mentioned that you're going to be at or want us to come, let us know what it is. If it's... Uh, if it's oil and gas, we probably know about it. If it's not oil and gas, it may not be on our radar. Yeah, and and, and yeah, reach out to us. At, uh, Patrick and I can do the speaking thing. So if you want us to come out to your school, your gun club, your HSE annual, whatever, let us know. We'd be happy to come out. Uh, we reach out to us and we'll share the details with you. All right, so this has been good. It's time to kind of wind this thing down. you got to jump on a plane, fly across the pond, get up early tomorrow morning. But, Giles, thank you so much for being on. This was really, really good. Well, it's been a pleasure to be with you. I've, I've enjoyed this. It's, uh, <laughs> it's always good to talk to people in the industry. And, I, and I'm, I'm a great believer that at the core of what we do, we always have to do it safely and with a minimum impact on the environment. Yep, you know, we, 100%. Exactly. We agree with you 100%. And, and it's cool to watch our industry as a whole get there. <laughs> you know, it's um, 20 years ago, it wasn't like it is now and it's just really nice to see people go home every day all their fingers all their toes you know we don't have the the environmental negative impacts we had years ago it's just nice to see us move the needle as an industry and i think yeah one thing we haven't touched on is is the environment i think that's another big change which come to the industry there's things we do which make the industry better which have a positive impact on the environment without damaging the industry you know, if we can get more out of the wells we're drilling at the moment and we, we can do it more efficiently, we can do it more cleanly, we'll end up with a longer lasting, more effective, more more economically viable industry. Boy, I could, yeah. I could do a whole show just on that. So, so, but you, so what you do is you shrink your footprint. Right? Absolutely. And you drive efficiencies in that well and that well can stay in production. Yeah. And we actually should probably make that put on a list of things to do because I really could talk through that for an hour. Yeah, we, we. I mean, it, the environment is a big part of what we do, and it's always. Uh, it only gets really highlighted when there's an incident, and you know we're in the news. But the industry as a whole is. We're striving to make it better, and like you said, we're lowering the footprint figuratively and literally. The rigs are getting smaller; they're able to mm. do more on one location. But yeah, it's 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 something we need to talk more about in, in a positive way. To just, yeah, that's like, a future show. We'll, yeah. we'll take care of that. It's, it's often seen as a negative for the industry, but actually it's a positive. We can, we can build very ex- positively environmentally uh, sensitive industry, I think. Yeah, no, no, we agree 100%. All right, ready to wind this thing down? Because this has been good. Yeah, it's time to shut it down. All right, folks, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Y'all be safe out there. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond. All right, Giles, do you have a craziest thing you've ever seen in the field story? Not in the field story. I did, a, um, I did a project up in northern Russia right back at the end of the 90s, and we didn't have any lost time accidents at site during the entire thing. And it was, 
it was pretty new up there. We didn't really know what was going on. Everything was a bit strange. But in the local town we were staying in, it was about minus 30 most of the time during the winter. And uh, we had these engineers who'd come across from London. And they, they'd been like they'd lived in Houston. If it was cold, it was, you know, there was a bit of ice one morning. And we said to these guys, you've got to be careful because cold is real cold. And, but the only cold weather accident we had was a guy tripped over in the street and as he fell on his face he stuck his tongue out and his tongue stuck to the pavement <laughs> he lost quite a bit of his tongue bringing it wow. taking it off again i was uh that was not good but <laughs> that's the I, I didn't think that's where it was gonna go but, <laughs> <it is>. uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but our site was safe <laughs> that's awesome 